podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the, I almost said to the Love Tennis Podcast there. That would have been a throwback to Tennis Unfiltered, of course, with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. We've got a full house today, which has been um, more challenging than usual over the last couple of weeks, but we have got Calvin Beton, despite the best efforts of BT uh, over the phone, and George Belshaw, despite the best efforts of his own particular internet troubles. So, at least for the moment, and who knows how long it'll last, we shall cherish what we have, which is all three of us here to look back at the last week of tennis and a whole lot more, I'm sure. Um, Calvin, you're enjoying some well-earned time at home. Have you worked out where you're off to next yet? Uh, I'm not, but I actually watched more tennis... uh last week than I have ever when I go away so um, <laughs> there was a day on Friday because basically I, I give a quick insight to what I kind of do when uh, when I watch tennis so I'll tend to watch the match that the lads play and then I, I clip the video which means I'll, I'll download the video of the match which means basically that um, I clip it I mean I, I which means I cut out all of the the parts in between the points Hmm. So in a doubles match, if you just have as soon as the point finishes, the next point starts, it's easier for for the lads to watch that. So I just basically edit the video and clip it all out. And then I um, I do an analysis and send it to the lads on some of the points, things that they uh, should, that I think they should look at doing and this kind of thing. So, so basically there was a day on, I think it was Thursday when Luke finished late because uh, he's in America. Um, and I downloaded his video, woke up in the morning, clipped the video, then Henry played, and then I I analysed Luke's video, and then I clipped Henry's video, analysed that, then Luke was playing again by that stage, so I watched Luke's next match, and then downloaded the video, and then clipped that again. So I basically spent the whole day watching two tennis matches, the same two tennis matches, um, <laughs> over and over. And then, like, how much of that, because this is, people will find this quite interesting, because I think probably they've never heard someone talk about that, but, like, how much of that, like, you say you clip it up, and then presumably you'll go through it yourself, or you go through it together, or, you know, how how much kind of analysis of that match will you do, or, or is there just not time to do that much? So it depends how long I've got. So that that day in particular, by the time I'd finished doing it, Luke was going on after an hour. So what I would normally do is I'd send them the clip. Vi- the reason I send the clip video is because they can watch it quicker. It's about 15 minutes. So they can yeah. of, to watch the full tennis match, about an hour and a half. Mm. Um, so and I'll usually mm. send it to them and ask me to send me some, like, some observations and thoughts as to what they would like to do better and also what they, what they did well. And then we'll talk about that. And then I'll send them, I'll maybe pick out, somewhere between six and 10 points during the match that I think are indicative of the match. So things I think like this is what I would like us to do better in the next match. This is what I thought we did really well uh, mm. and send them onto them. Whereas if I'm at the tournament, then we'll, we'll probably just, we probably wouldn't go through all that. We'd, we'd maybe watch a clip video and just discuss it while, while we were there. But, mm. um, but yeah, it- so is there an element of less is more with that player feedback stuff like that you can over overwhelm them a bit yeah there is and i'm always wary of that so what i'll tend to do is um so when i edit the video i will the video I'll play and i'll always have there'll be a little bit of text in the bottom which is my thoughts on it and i'll always keep try and keep that to two sentences um and then it depends as well how long they've got so if it's if they play in the morning so say henry was playing in the morning 
and then I managed to clip it and do analyst and analysis on it and he doesn't play until the next day, then I can go into a little bit more detail. But the one day when um the one day when, when I had to send it to Luke when he only had maybe an hour before his next match, then that one was basically to be honest, that one was basically just things that they'd done well because you don't want to be pulling apart parts of game and that that type of thing. So it was just more like really like this move, let's try and see more of this good stuff here and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. George, video analysis of your uh, high-level meetings, that's something you've ever been through? No, that sounds uh, very painful for old Calvin having to keep trudging through that. <clears throat> I'm not sure anyone <clears throat> wants to video analyse much I'm up to. I, I have, um, when I years and years ago, I did go to Volataria and they did a lot of videos of my serve and other kind of poor uh, techniques, shots, which was, you know, a lot shorter clips, but just watching them back and trying to learn from them. Um, I found it very useful, to be fair. Um, but then I've probably forgot it about 15 years on from that. But at the time, I think if you had that kind of reinforcing um, of narrative and kind of visuals to see what you've done well, what you haven't done well, it's a good way to learn. For sure. I mean, I, I as people know, I play a fair bit of golf, although I haven't for the last couple of months because I broke my finger and I went out for the first time uh, in a long time the other day and I just stuck the phone behind the tee on a couple of shots later on and uh, and, and just, just to see what it, and as the first time you do it you realise all the things that you do and I, I I would say to any amateur sports person out there and I, this comes from my point of view and I guess it's kind of backed up by Calvin talking about what he does professionally there video yourself at all opportunities so that you can watch it back and really understand what you're doing because it will look so different from the way that it feels and i imagine at every level that's that's useful uh, anyway that wasn't really what i was um planning on talking about today but uh interesting stuff as always <laughs> uh, i should say that you can always leave us a review and i'm very glad that some of you have this week um one from tom four three two one one two three four i'm sure Mr. and Mrs. 4231-1234 must be very proud of their naming. Um, <laughs> it just says, quality stuff, the best tennis podcast around, uh, and gives us five stars. Uh, and then P. Macaba says, I don't know if I pronounced that right or whether that's your real name, but anyway, says, uh, great show. Hi, guys, really enjoy the show. As a coach and parent of a guy ranked in the top 300, I find your unfiltered view of the tour very interesting. Especially enjoy Calvin's views on coaching on the tour. Keep up the good work. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first couple of minutes there then, um, Mr. Macaba. Um, I, I think that's all of the ones that I haven't read out before uh, from the last week. So just the two this week. But anyway, um, some of you will have also uh, received an email from us this week, which is quite exciting. I, I, I suppose you, I hope you agree. Um, I, w- as you know, you've often had to put your email address in to play fantasy tennis. And we've asked you if you want to get a newsletter from us. And lots of people said, oh, yes, well, I can't wait to get this newsletter. And I, I haven't <laughs> done anything about it. Well, now I've finally got around to doing something about it. So um, we are now on Substack as so many people are, tennisunfiltered.substack.com, and you can go and subscribe that way. Um, already had lots of feedback from the first one, lots of people getting in touch saying they liked it, saying they'd love to pay for more, um, which is always a slightly scary thing for people to say, <laughs> but uh, an exciting one to hear. So, um, yeah, watch this space on that front. We'll, we'll do our best, and you know, while, while everything is still free and we are still doing it out of the goodness of our heart, then, um, well... And I hope you'll understand that it, it, it's not going to be every day, but we'll do our best. Uh, anyway, let's move on to some actual tennis, shall we? Um, I think I, the thing that is on the top of the running order, which I, I think is mostly chronological, George, rather than uh, of importance, is something that, that caught my, maybe not imagination, but I did enjoy 
maybe not, maybe even not enjoy is the right word. Anyway, um, Cheng Shin Wen revealing that Wim Fassett had left her as a coach to rejoin Naomi Osaka, and um, Cheng Shin Wen wasn't very happy about it. George, to to put it mildly, no, she wasn't. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm sure I remember the exact words she used. It was something about kind of breaching the contract wasn't it um kind of finishing it early which um i, I have to say is quite well it's, i mean it's not necessarily ridiculous from her perspective i can understand slight annoyance but it it does feel a bit kind of pot kettle black with any player attempting to throw that at a coach i mean a coaching contract as i'm sure calvin will give you far better details than i can um always appears completely precarious rarely more security than one year and realistically, not much security uh, on the paper it's sort of written on um, is the sense I kind of get. And, you know, I, I think particularly coming off the back of a time where we're aware of certain players who, for example, cancelled coaching contracts during like the pandemic and stuff. Um, I don't really see kind of whim for set jumping out of this a li- little bit earlier, bear in mind, with a couple of months to the end of the season. Um where I suspect is where his contract ran to anyway, um, is really the greatest crime of all time. So, yeah, I'm sure it's frustrating on a personal level, but I'm not sure I have much sympathy in this kind of dynamic of the player-coach relationship. Uh, a, a newly lit Calvin. You're looking beautiful, Calvin. <laughs> I just, just, just realised that I put my light on. <laughs> <laughs> it's good because you've got, for some, I've got a green felt desk, and it's something I need to work on, but basically it means that the the colour that I get reflected into my face is a pale green, which is not a very flattering one. But you're um, <laughs> you're clearly in a much better lighting situation. Uh, we we discussed this a bit offline, Calvin, and talked about you know coaching contracts. Now you were sort of said quite interestingly, most of them do run until December anyway, and are generally you know at best end of season. So maybe there's not that many months being chopped off the end of this. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't know for definite. Um, I mean, I, th- I also think in a lot of the Chinese players, it tends to be paid by the federation as well. So maybe it is a longer term one in this in this respect. But you know, one thing we know about Wim Fassett is that he wants to get paid, and he gets paid handsomely. And he stepped away from play. I mean, I think he stepped away from Joe Conta after they'd had a very very successful year um, because she wouldn't pay him what he. He basically, although that contract was up, and he basically said, "This is what I want paying if you want me to keep on working with you," and and she basically said that that wasn't affordable, and he said, "Right," he walked away from it. So, you know, and fair, you know, he's in every right to do that. He he he, he probably, I think he's probably one of the the three or four most highly paid coaches in the world, um, and I suspect he might, if he's going with Osaka, I suspect he might be in the top one or two most highly paid coaches in the world. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, but on the flip side of that, like we, like we said, I, I don't, I'd be surprised if he has a contract past, um, it might be a rolling contract, you never know, um, and that kind of thing. But, um, I'd be surprised if it's, if it's a hugely long term contract. But, you know, no, no disrespect to the player who's leaving, but which coach isn't going to want to go and work with a motivated Naomi, Naomi Osaka, which is what it seems that she's, alluding to that she she seems motivated now she's saying she's coming back she's playing a load of tournaments um and he's had success with her before so i don't think it's any surprise that he's going to go and do that 
just on his level of pay, I mean, Fissette probably does strike me as one of those who does deserve to be pretty high up the kind of coaching rankings in terms of pay. I think he's got a pretty pretty bold track record in terms of improving players who've not necessarily yeah. been in their best form and taking them up. So for all the kind of pay, sometimes we question some of the player, people who kind of get good coaching jobs and roles. He, he probably falls in the camp of one. We're kind of comfortable being that highly paid, I guess. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't I know some people don't particularly like the way he operates. I don't know him at all, but what I will say is is he gets play he improves players. He improves players beyond two and a, a well, a beyond a level which you'd think is a natural improvement. And not all coaches do that. There are a hell of a lot of bluffers in the coaching community who are earning a lot of money and you don't really see what they do. Um I, I don't want to name them, but I know specifically who I'm talking about, but Winforset is not one of those. Winforset is, you know, he gets paid a lot and you can see why he gets paid a lot. He makes plays mm. better. I I said and I think I stand by it. You know, there's there's I understand why a player might be upset for losing a coach. Um but I think to kind of say that it was unethical, you know, to to leave the contract. It's like well, the, the either he's breached contract and you can sue him. Um, or he has given notice and that's just the contract you drew up with him, or there was a break clause. And, you know, all three of those have recourse, one of which is next time you write a contract, don't put a break clause in, or don't give a fixed contract with a notice period, or in the third case, sue it. Like, I, I, I have some sympathy, but in the end, there's only so much sympathy I can have when this is a contract between two parties and... You know, if it's been breached, it's been breached. But if it hasn't, it hasn't. This feels like a very underreported aspect of tennis, actually, now we're kind of talking about it. Because I think if you think about football, for example, I know it's not the right sport to necessarily compare it with, but there's lots of stories about clubs paying managers long time after they leave, etc., and their coaching stuff and how much will all this cost them, etc., but given how often players are binning coaches in tennis, I mean, they, they can't, can't be sticking them all on long contracts and just paying them off forever. It'd be be quite ridiculous. So it, it would be interesting for someone to do, maybe you, James, a bit of a kind of a deep dive into uh, Gosh, contracts and the, like the finances behind it. George, if I can avoid that wherever possible. Was um, I'm just thinking now, was Fassett, um coaching Osaka when she basically took a time off from the tour? Was he her uh, last coach or not? Uh, I just trying to do the maths on the timeline. I think he probably was. Is that? Then, is that... I mean, if he was, then uh, you've got to kind of be expecting that if she comes back, then he's going to go back there. Mm. And and I, I suspect, and again, this is speculation, but my guess is that there will have been a clause in there that says, "Look, my Osaka's my player. I'm only not coaching her because she she went and had a baby." Like, I, I'm going to, you know, at some point it might come that I need to go back and work with her. And my guess is that, like, Cheng, Cheng has looked at it and gone, it's nearly the end of the season. Could you not just hang around for another month? It, it, it is a bit odd that they wouldn't have had that conversation at the door. And I, I suppose the, the question that might kind of come to your mind when thinking why they didn't have the conversation was, did Wimperset believe Naomi Osaka? would actually come back. I mean, at the point she yeah. left tennis, obviously there was the kind of child side of things, but she didn't seem desperately interested in being involved in the long run. You know, if you were a 
thinking about the future of a player at that stage, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking, yeah, she's going to definitely come back and stick this out for another 15 years and we're going to have a go again for slams. You know, it was a player kind of really struggling mentally, starved of motivation, I would say, to kind of get back to the top of the game. Just felt like she'd fallen out of love with it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, perhaps he wasn't really thinking this, this scenario would be on the cards that soon. I think it's also like, again... He is money-oriented. He is money-driven. There's no question of that. But this is not like one of those where you think he's just taking somebody who you think, you know, she's not that good, but she's going to pay him an absolute fortune. This is like potentially the, the this is potentially somebody who's going back to world number one uh, if she's fully fit and fully motivated. And he probably thinks there's there's unfinished business there. And you know, as, as we've alluded to there, you know, players are pretty ruthless at times. You know, we know that there's. They keep going on about it because I'll get accused of having another pop again. But there's a British female player who recently has split with her coach because she didn't want to pay him while she was injured. And so, you know, that's that's normal that you pay your coach while you're injured if you've got them on salary. Like, what what is the coach going to do otherwise? Is he just going to like not get paid for eight months? And wait around. I was going to say go off on a different tangent there, but I guess the the the, the positive news of all of this is that Win for set money or insisted or not probably does believe that Osaka is or has been convinced that she's really motivated, excited, wanting to come back, and that, that's only bloody good news, isn't it? I mean, if she, if she really wants to get back up there, just having Goff win a Slam, players like Sviontek, Sabalenka, Rybakina having pretty decent years that. A fit Osaka, and that would be a pretty exciting prospect, I would suggest. I'm amazed that you kind of found the silver lining to all this, George. What is like <laughs> basically just a contractual stupidity and a bit of a money grab. And you're like, no, no, this is great news. Right, okay, very good. Um, I was just going to check something on the WTA website for a little fact check, but uh, WTA website is down. Because obviously, why wouldn't it be? Uh, anyway, so we'll we'll move on let's, to the men's because their website's actually up. <laughs> let's, hope the, let's hope the whole tour's not down and they've just like gone bankrupt or something. Uh, let's not rule it out. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's talk about Andy Murray, shall we? Because uh, I think we've all had this, right? When you go to a wedding and you don't know many people there, but you this know weekend. enough people... You've just been to a wedding, George. Now, when you walked into the room for, to see the table plan, that's a bit of a sweaty moment, isn't it? Because you're like, okay, this is big. Like, There's a few people here I really don't want to sit next to, and it could be a really tedious evening if I do. And then you get there, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm sat next to Uncle Nobed. How is this possible? I imagine that's how Andy Murray felt when he saw the draw for Beijing, and it had thrown him up against Alex Dumanur, because he has... <laughs> a dismal head-to-head record against Alex Dimonor. And sure enough, it, it worked out that way once again. And he was beaten 6-3-5-7-7-6. He's now lost five matches to Alex Dimonor over the last four years. Um, Calvin, I, I think his performance in this one frustrated you more than maybe in other previous defeats to Alex Dimonor. Yeah, I mean, that look, that head-to-head's a bit skewed because Murray was coming back from a hip replacement in mm. a lot of those. I don't think, you know, Murray in his prime would not be having that kind of record against Alex Dimonor. Like, he'd be comfortably beating him every time. Mm. Um, this one, I was... I, I think more than any other match I've seen, I really want Andy Murray to, to you know, to, to get back to where, where he thinks he can be in the game. I really do. 
And he's still great to watch. He's one of the only players who, when he's on, I will make time to watch. But what frustrated me so much the other day was it was nothing new. That was the frustrating thing that he played so well. He was doing, you know, the, the match was taking the course that it normally does when he plays the Menor and he was getting frustrated. Then he started playing so well and he won the second set, got 5 2 up in the third. And the minute he got 5 2 up in the third from about, I think it was maybe about 30 all in the 5 2 game. He then he does this thing where he regresses to thinking, right, the way to close this out is I'm just not going to miss. Regardless of any anything he's done before, which was playing playing measured tennis, every ball on its merit, he wasn't taking risks that were un- unnecessary, but when there, was a ha- when there was a chance there, he was being clinical, he was attacking, and he was just making the right moves. And then this one just played out exactly the same. It was exactly the same as that tie-break he played against Sitsipas at Wimbledon where he just thinks it's almost like I, I, I have huge respect for him. So I don't want to be sound this has been overcritical, but he almost has this thing of like, right, I'm smarter than these guys. I'm going to put balls in and they're going to miss. And the problem is, I think, I don't think it's a physical thing now with him. He can't move as well as he can, but who can, who can move at 36, 37 as well as they could at 29? Nobody can. So, you know, it's like, he still can get around the court pretty well, but, the problem is, and I, I, I do think that this is where I've got to on it, is that in his prime, he had a stigma. There, there was a thing, there was an aura about him that the guys from that generation, when he played against them, they almost didn't, you wouldn't want to attack him because if you attack him, he's so good on the counter-attack. I always said with Murray that his second serve being weak was actually a weapon for him because players would attack his second serve they'd get him on the defence and the, the last place they wanted to be was having Andy Murray on the defence because he defended so well and he'd put you in an awkward position from defence and that kind of thing. So you had this aura about him where the players the players would second-guess themselves in, in the last generation, thinking that this guy's so fast around the court, he moves so well, if I attack him, he'll do this, but if I sit back and defend, he's going to beat me at that because he won't miss. The aura's gone. The aura's not there anymore. Mm. Like though you see players like Dimonor and anyone from that generation who doesn't have the scar tissue of having lost to him through juniors and seniors, which a lot of those guys had, they just think he's thirty-seven year old guy who's a pretty good tennis player. But play my game, I'll beat him. Mm. That's the way that they look. That's the way that they look at it now. That's the way that Sitsipas looked at it. It's the way that Dimonor did the other day. You're got. You're actually going to get to five-two up, and you're going to go. Well, all I'm going to do here is I'm not going to miss. And you're you're doing that against a guy who's the only thing he has going for him. I don't think Alex Dimonor is very good, if I'm honest, at that level. I saw him live at Davis Cup. I wasn't wasn't overly impressed at all. I don't really rate him. Um, but the one thing he does do, I think he's probably the fastest player on tour, and he's not, he's not going to miss. He's not going to miss. So what? What you can? You've then got you've got two players who are determined not to miss, but you've got one one of the players is going to attack, and the other one isn't. Like the the other, one of the players is going to go if I get a chance to attack. I'm going to attack. And the other player is going, even if I get a chance to attack, I'm not going to. I'm going to sit back here and I'm just not going to miss. And it bit him in the ass again. Again, just the same as it did at Wimbledon. If he'd have took every ball on its merit and attacked the balls, which I know he can, because he's a beautiful ball striker, Andy Murray, he'd have beaten Sitsipas at Wimbledon and he'd have beaten Dimonor the other day. And he didn't. He saw the balls on its merit, the balls there to be attacked, and he chose to not go for them. And it's cost him two big matches there. George, hard to disagree with. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I guess the 
the further point is, you know, at, at what stage does this change or is it going to change or is the change going to be actually, he just gets tired of this all and says, oh, screw it, I'm, I, I'm done with this. I, I, I do still just question, and we said this after the Sissipass match, I do just question what really will keep him going now. Like, there's there's one aspect that's like he's so close to winning a lot of these matches and maybe he just thinks he's going to get over the line. But he's been going so long not getting over the line in these big moments that he must just feel slightly <laughs> demoralised really now. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's really frustrating being, you know, someone who we all want Murray to do well and I think we all think he can potentially do well. Um, but he, as Calvin says, he's just just doesn't go for it in the biggest moments anymore and it's costing him time and time again now. I don't know if he... Do you think he ever did go for it in the biggest moments though, George? Or did, like, what I've just said there, did he think, right, he got to a place where he's... He would let, he'd would he almost let his aura close the matches out for him and, and he'd just beat the players down, like, in their own heads. Whereas now he can't. That doesn't work now against these players. But... Hmm. I can, the the yeah, thing I, mean, I find bizarre is that his coach. I, I know, I know Mike Hilton, his coach. I've not spoke with Hilton I mean, about it um, the other day, but I can't imagine that. You know, Hills has a has a has got a great tennis brain. He's seeing it. I can't imagine he's going like he's not saying what I'm saying now and going like Andy, you've got to hit the ball, you've got to hit the ball at the end of the matches. Like that's what you've got to do. Like it's not football. It doesn't. Time doesn't run out. It's not boxing. It's a unique sport like that. It's not boxing where when you're in the lead, you can just you can basically just stay on the end of your jab and go, you've got to knock me out. This is not that. You've got to close the matches out. And the one thing that's not going to... The one thing that Alex Dimonor is not going to do at the end of a tennis match is just start missing. Like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. So I don't see how he thought that out. But I don't want... I, I'm really worried that... I, I, I don't know. Maybe he will say... I've had enough of this, but I don't, I hope he doesn't do that before we see an extended period of time of him just going caution to the wind. I'm just going to see if I, I'm just going to go on the attack. He's a big guy. He's got a big serve. He's got a beautiful ball striker. I would just liked, I'd love to see like a year of Murray caution to the wind swinging at balls. Would he, um, if that year doesn't come, do you think he'll, it is forties look back on this time with kind of elongated regret? I'm sure he will, yeah. I'm sure he'll... It's a difficult one because this is what's brought him all his success. And he does have... I keep coming back to it. He's, these things that he that Andy has in his head of like... I remember that time it was... I don't know, maybe it was two years ago now when he played Safalin in that challenger. Um, I think it was Safalin and he lost... I don't know whether he lost to him or he beat him in a close match. But he said something... It was like when Safalin was about 200 in the world. And Murray goes, you know, it was just really difficult because we didn't have any data on him. And I was like, Andy Murray, like, what do you mean we didn't have any data on him? Like, you know, it's like if I play, if I play against him now, am I going to take him to like seven six in the third because he doesn't have any data on how my backhand shit? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, like, come on, like, why do we have to? You know, and I know he's he's always gone big on the data and the scouting and that kind of thing, but you don't need it. You don't need. He has other ways to win matches other than I'm just going to put the ball in and never miss, and I'm going to chase. Like he has, he can win matches in other ways. He's one of the twenty best tennis players of of all time, and, mm. and maybe higher than that. 
maybe one of the 15 best players of all time. And I, I can't see any way that he won't regret at the end. But then again, he's, he's also a great tennis brain as Andy. I can't see... He must have come off of that match against City Pass and gone, I've got to... I've got to go for it a bit more there. He must have done that. But then he's coming out and he's playing matches like this. And you could see this wasn't, I'll maintain this. He might say it's different, but, you know, this wasn't nerves the other day. This wasn't nerves of getting tight and going, I'm just not going to miss, which can happen a lot. In my view, this was a concerted tactic that he had in his mind that, my tactic now is that I'm not going to miss. You see some players, they just play overly safe. They don't play every ball. They, I, I say it all the time that when, when choking in tennis is when you're living somewhere between fear and hope. You're, you're fearful that you'll miss and you're hoping that your opponent starts to miss. This wasn't that. This was concerted. I think the best way for me to win this match is to not miss any balls. And it just went tits up again. And I could see it, and I think I text you guys, I could see it when he... He lost the match point at 5-2, and he was still a break on 5-2 on Dimonor's serve. Then it went back to 5-3 on his own serve. And I thought it then, he's not going to win this match, and you shouldn't be able to think that 5-3. Not beyond him kind of regressing it, and I know this probably probably is going to sound a little bit harsh given he's mucking around with a metal hit, but, but does it spell like this damages legacy at all? Like, do, do we all look at him thinking... I don't think you know, so. You talk about being a great thinker, but is he actually thinking about it now? Is he is he making the right choices now? Is he, you know, for the players playing him right now, looking back up to him, are they forgetting? And also just for kind of a younger generation of fans, are they going to watch a kind of old Murray and think, oh, this guy probably wasn't that good. It was maybe just a bit of a weaker, weaker time. I, I think it's maybe, though, once you've been successful at something, I think this is the case in sport, you tend to think that that's the way that you're always successful. And you see it in, when players go into coaching as well. Nearly every time that successful players go into coaching in any sport, the way that they try to coach is the way that they would have done it. And they, they can't understand that maybe they were just extremely talented and some players can just do that. And they don't really like to see any other way of doing it. The the one different the only, the player of all we talk about the big three or the big four or whatever this goat debate the player who's adapted the most throughout his career is Nadal. He's he's the one who's changed actually the way that he played more throughout his career and adapted shots and that kind of thing. And I don't I, I think that Nadal I think we'll see when Nadal comes back. I might be proven wrong, but I think he will know. If he's going to come back, and he, he will only come back if he thinks he's got a chance to win those tournaments. But he will go, I can't be chasing balls around here. Mm. I can't be going, I'm I'm going after this. I can't be chasing, I can't be getting into 80-shot rallies in the final in, in with Novak Djokovic. But I can out-hit him. Mm. I think to answer your question, George, about legacy, I would say, no, not a chance. It really affects his legacy in any way. I mean, if you think about the greats, and, and then you specifically think about the greats who probably went on too long, and, and, and you go across the breadth of sporting history. George Best came and played for Hibs when he was fat and alcoholic, and he basically played deep-lying playmaker and ping passes, and he wasn't very good. Muhammad Ali fought on too long, did himself tremendous amounts of damage, but like, do people not still think that George Best and Muhammad Ali are two of the best sports people of all time, Calvin? 
I'll, I'll give an even better example of that, James, that it wasn't long ago, I think it was then when Anthony Joshua's last fight, and one of my mates made a claim that he thought that the current version of Mike Tyson could beat Anthony Joshua. <laughs> and I was like, right, aside from the fact that that's a ridiculous statement, right, did you not see the, like, the end of Mike Tyson's career and the people he was losing to in that? But the answer is no, they've just forgotten it. To, yeah. these pe- to the people who talk about Tyson, Tyson's career ended probably around about the Evander Holyfield fight, and they don't remember anything beyond that. So it doesn't... I think mm. if you're that good, it doesn't affect your legacy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I know we, we are veering a bit off the order of play here, but I thought Calvin sort of touched on quite an r- interesting topic that might be worth slight exploring further. But N- Nadal adapting the game mo- his game most over the years compared to kind of Djokovic and Federer, what what specifically do you think he adapted? Because, you know, when I'm thinking about these guys adapting, uh, the big one that I remember, which is very much recency bias, is kind of Federer's big adaptation. And here's a matchup with Nadal late on in his career where he st- suddenly started kind of going over the top of that that backhand a lot more when he was so used to slicing against players. But can you just talk us through what you think about Nadal and how he's changed over the years? I don't think that that was necessarily a change in Federer's game, though, George. I think that was something that he always did. He was just, for some reason, he thought that he could beat Nadal by slicing, and then he thought, no, I'm going to have to hit it. But it was something that he'd always had in the locker. Whereas Nadal, if you watch Nadal early early doors, Nadal, he basically stands 20 feet behind the baseline and loops up forehand. His backhand was basically there to put in the court until he got forehand, and his serve was pretty weak, especially his second serve. Whereas you look at the version of him, I guess the version at the end or before he got this injury, he was very aggressive the way that he was playing. He was still a great defender, but I think he's gone the most from defence to attack. Whereas Djokovic, I think, has just got better at the things that he always did. I don't think he's necessarily changed the way he played. I think he's just gotten better and better and better playing with the same game style throughout his career. Whereas I do think Nadal from, I think there's probably about three or four stages of Nadal's career where you would say it's unrecognisable from two stages before what he's doing now. Federer, I don't think ever changed. Federer just like, he he went through a period where he was just too passive on his backhand. But if you look at him early on his career, he wasn't passive in his backhand. He just, he was hitting it all the time. Uh, And where, taking this beyond the big three, where, where would that adaptation rank with other great are there other big players who have changed kind of from defensive uh, I mean, Agassi changed quite a bit Agassi early on his career before he teamed up with Brad Gilbert was very very flashy he's a very very high risk type of player he'd stand on the baseline take it early and he'd go after any quarter chance he'd go after a winner at and Gilbert made the big change in his career of of basically going because Agassi was a phenomenal ball striker and Gilbert made the change in that you're going to strike. You're going to go big margins, high percentage, but hit the ball, hit the ball hard and aggressive, but into high percentage areas. And so that changed. And then Agassi actually became the at the end of his career, he became somebody who would just make the opponents run. He wasn't going for any any chance. Any, but so that was a that was a, a big change in in terms of at the top. I mean, obviously, the other one I'll bring up is kind of, I feel like more we're talking about two of my favorite <laughs> players. The other one is Del Potro because he just didn't have a backhand. Yeah. You know, he, 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 it was forced upon him, though. So he basically came back. He was at the top of the game and came back to the top of the game without a drive backhand. Yes. 
I don't have a drive backhand either. I, I really have to improvise <laughs> when it comes to, to tennis. I, I don't know I, whether, and speaking of that, I don't know whether people have seen it doing the rounds, that that video of, of the guy doing the um, the tennis impressions. Has anyone seen it? Oh, Josh uh, Berry, yeah. He's no, no, very, no. The guy, oh. no, the guy who does the shots. Oh no! No, and this guy is phenomenal. Let me find. I'm going to find it and then I'll I'll send it to you guys and I'll put it in the show notes. The, um, yeah, yeah. The show notes. Yeah. Uh, very good. Uh, yeah. Although people who have seen Josh Berry's tennis impressions, he's also he's a very very good mimic. He's also a very funny player guy and actually was a pretty decent tennis player um, as a junior. Um, it, the the key is because I met him at Wimbledon this year. And I said, oh, you used to play a bit, didn't you? And he's like, well, not really. And I, I knew he was quite a good junior. And the fact that he said, well, not really, is a real giveaway that like, actually probably did play to quite a decent level. Whereas George says he was quite good and is quite open about that, which tells me that he really wasn't. So um, that's <laughs> the, the main giveaway there. Um, let's move on. Uh, I feel like we've barely talked about actual tennis going on this week. Um, now, we sort of deliberately record this podcast on Mondays because then we can talk about like what happened in the final the day before and sort of, you know, it kind of, tra- but no, no, the Asian swing decided to completely screw with that uh, formula by having their finals on Wednesdays uh, to coincide with the 10 day thousand uh, going on at the end of the swing. So um, titles for Alexander Zverev and Chengdu, Karen Hatchinoff and Zhuhai, uh, Onzibur in Ningbo and Veronica Kudamatova in Tokyo. George, of those four champions, which do you think is the most significant, important, or is it all just just gravy? I, I still think of those players, Zverev's the one that every win he has is another slight notch towards him getting back to a level that could potentially compete at, at the majors. You know, I think... As much as I like Ons Jabour, her winning a title at this level is kind of a given now. The problem is getting over the line at a Grand Slam, which is such a big mental problem for her. And I think there's just stronger players than her, broadly speaking, to kind of win in those big matches. I, I, the one she lost this year was so poor, that her winning a title like this does little to strengthen the claim. She's going to go and not have that problem again. Um, if she If she gets another shot, which, you know, it's basically in itself. Hatchinov, I think, is too limited to really kind of have a big impact at at majors. So kind of title for him feels kind of in a similar category. And, you know, could have met over. I would never rule out many players from winning a WTA slam, given the history of the last 10 years. But I, I feel, I hope, we're in a period of relative strength incoming and potentially throwing Osaka back in the mix. I think there's enough good players that we might see a reduction in that and kind of them shared around four or five players over the next few years with the occasional um, non kind of big winner. Whereas Verev has been at a level where I've watched him and I've thought, okay, you, you actually can go and potentially beat the best guys in the world over five sets. You can definitely do it over three. Obviously had that horror injury He's not quite reached that level this year, but he's still going to be comfortably on for ATP finals sort of territory. I just feel every time he gets a little bit more confidence, he's threatening to get back to the level he really was at just before that injury happened. Um, So I think he's anything that says he's going in that direction probably is the most significant thing we'll kind of see on the men's tour at the minute when we're lacking a real 
potential breakthrough star in that rung below, I would say, like in the age bracket. I mean, mm. um, I think I think the ons writing off the ons victory too quickly is a bit harsh. Like I think, you know, you don't win many titles in your career. I, I, I'm just checking how many titles she's won. I, I imagine that's maybe her sixth or seventh. It's her fifth. There you go. Like mm. it, there is still a lot to be said for just building that habit and you know, being in those situations, being in finals more often, you know, if, you, if you're if you like, you know, break point down in the third set of a final, for Onsjabur, it's probably still only like the third or fourth time that's happened to her full stop. And I think those kind of situations are pretty unique. So I think there is still some merit in that. Um, it, it wasn't like the strongest field in the world and she didn't have to beat, I mean, she beat Diane Schneider in the final, which, you know, does not, smack of quality i think pretty much everyone she beat you'd expect her to play in the first or second round of a slam put it that way um but uh i i, I don't know it's just i hate to write people off george um like cam norrie for example i'm not going to write him off even though he's had one one of the worst runs i can remember of a british number one yeah i i enjoy all the reviews that tell us how wrong we've been getting things in the past i think we only latch onto a couple of poor predictions now and then but i i I've definitely had some absolute shockers on this podcast that I'm glad I've been resigned to the uh, <laughs> to the archives for our new listeners to jump through and hear, and they must think I'm a total idiot. So um, maybe this will be another one. I mean, this is the thing, right? People are often like, oh, stop clocks always right twice if, if you're someone who like, bangs on about the same things all the time. But like, actually, if you go through and sift every prediction we ever made, of course we get them wrong. Like, I, I genuinely think these people would rather that we just had no opinion. Just like, we'd rather you never predict anything. That, you know, I remember on a football podcast, Johnny Lou once saying, like, and I, I can never really tell with Johnny whether he's joking or not, because a lot of the time I think he doesn't know whether he's joking or not. But he, um, he was asked a question about, like, oh, how do you think Man United would go the weekend or something like that? And he was like, well, I don't know, but we'll find out. That's the great thing about sport. We always find out afterwards. <laughs> it's like, well, what's the point then? Like, we guess we'll just, we'll just sack it all off. Um, maybe we've got to stop throwing it forward, George, and we'll just talk about what's happened, things that have definitely happened. Although, frankly, sometimes we don't even know that. So um, that's why we don't win awards at the British Podcast Awards. Congrats to the Tennis Podcast, by the way, for that, because that's a pretty massive award. And uh, I enjoyed Matt tweeting about thanks to all the haters as well and quote retweeting some abuse because I'm always in favour of anyone giving it back to the haters. Um, uh, also, Aslan Karatsev beat Cam Norrie in two tiebreak sets, which I just wanted to just note and I can't really get my head around it. But anyway. I'm pretty sure at the start of this year we predicted where all the British players would finish. And that would be a good list to see now because I think the Norrie one might end up being kind of close. Um I think a few of us said he would dip a bit and it wasn't looking like that way the first half of the year, but I suspect he might be more in line for a bit of a slide the longer we go. I'm just seeing if I can dig them out now, George, just to give us a little idea, but I'm not sure I've got it. I've got the 2022 ones. They will, but they will have to dig them out from the pod, from the audio. But yeah, it, it will be interesting because I suspect I'm in trouble because I can remember one or two of them, and they weren't very good. Um, <laughs> I can't remember any of mine, which is probably for the best. There's definitely, like something, involving, trauma. There's definitely something involving Kyle Edmund that I think is going to look quite bad. <laughs> that, doesn't, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't feel like my fault, to be honest. 
Um, I, I wouldn't even want to try and guess a number of where Kyle Edmund is in the rankings, but I doubt I'd have said like out of the top five hundred. I mean, could you guess is. his current ranking? In fairness, uh, I, I mean, three eighty four, six thirty. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, that's that's. I mean, I do feel pretty bad for him. To be fair, it's not it's not been very pleasant. He's a very good player and a very nice guy. Um, anyway, let's move on to some merrier topics, shall we? Oh, Eleni Rabakina, uh complaining about performance buys and not getting her due by and then pulling out the tournament is right up there in terms of banter. Um, and I, I'm not sure I ever really thought Eleni Rabakina would be like a member of the banter team. I don't know who is on the, the tennis banter team. Um, probably Evo. Um, Elena Rabakina now uh, just for like sheer sort of somewhere between shithousing and trolling I think that's the that's what that's what sort of gets you onto the banter team um, I think just if we're talking about recent entries I'm definitely not suggesting he's a permanent member of the banter but the Djokovic phone put down to Shelton was definitely up yeah, there yeah. the best banter of yeah. the year so uh, Daniil Medvedev is surely on the banter yeah. team I mean that one where he called the umpire a small cat to avoid like calling him a <laughs> pussy is right up there in terms of like hilarious things to have heard in the tennis court um I noticed that after the sort of outrage about performance buys in Tokyo then uh, the week after in China, there were more performance buys rather than less of them, which which I kind of admire. Like I think, like, I think we maybe we said all we need to say, but I, they are good. It's, it's, it's like that um, that video of that. Have you seen that video of that Scottish bloke who goes, "Don't back down." Oh, Double oh down. God, George, stop doing your accent. Yeah, that's that Scottish bloke is Limmy, and um, your Scottish accent is one of your worst. I think. Um, and, I, and that is a Probably. high bar. That is a high bar. <laughs> yeah, I do have Scottish <laughs> roots as well, so I really have no excuse. Yeah, you are ginger. Um, uh, yes, uh, I agree. We should be doubling down on performance buys. Anyway, it, it, there's probably not much more to say about that, but um, I'm right up for it. Uh, let's talk. I think we should because I'm just trying to work out when they're going to be and whether they'll have expired. But I don't think I care if you're going to hold tournaments where the finals are on Wednesday. Then. You're going to get out-of-date content, I'm afraid. The semi-finals in Beijing are hot. Uh, Sinner versus Alcaraz and Medvedev versus Zverev. Uh, Yannick Sinner, who, of course, beat Dan Evans along the way, uh, <laughs> having been injured, apparently, but then sort of miraculously recovering, and Dan Evans then limping off um, in jest about Yannick Sinner's injury. I mean, it it's a little bit... Like Calvin, I can understand the frustration, and as someone who really um, doubled Dune uh, on Novak Djokovic's fake or not fake hamstring injury, I mean, I, you can ima- you can understand why players get annoyed when they think a player's faked an injury or like overhand an injury. Yeah, um, I don't really know how you solve it, but it is becoming a problem. It's the same as it happens at all. It's happening at all levels, but it's particularly happening at the. The, the, at the top level and again it's something when we're trying to engage more more viewers in it it doesn't really help the product where when a match is really taking off and one player isn't going one player's way they'll just call an injury timeout and basically everyone knows they're not injured but they'll just call an injury timeout just to affect the match that's not what the injury timeouts are there for and I don't really know how you're dealing with it but you know it, it was 
I don't think that Sinner was injured the other day. Um, and I think Evo's frustration was probably right. But you can go, oh, it's just one of those things, though. You've got to deal with it. But it's not something that you should have to deal with. Just calling an injury timeout because you're wanting to break the matchup. That's not really what it's there for. And again, I don't know whether it's like the physios need to be... The problem is the only person who can say whether they are injured or not is the physio. But the physios have to maintain a trust with the mm. players. They deal with them all the time. So I don't know whether it's you need an independent physio for the matches who will come off and go, you know, and they're going to go, look, there's nothing wrong with his hamstring or something like that. Or... But, but the trainer, like the the one who assesses the injury is like a tour trainer, right? Like it's, it's not like they get their physio on. No, they don't. But those, but then most players don't have their own physio. They, sure. they deal with the physios at the tournament. And, mm. you know, they have relationships with the players. I don't yeah, yeah. anything untoward. And so I say they have relationships, but they're, you know, they deal with them week in, week out. And you can hardly, it's going to be a problem if you go on the court and go to the umpire, this player's not injured, he's faking. And then the next tournament, you that player wants some treatment. Like, you know, you basically accuse them of lying. But I don't know, really know how you do it. I mean, one of the things, you know, we've seen it before is that if, again, the, the hamstring one is the one that I, I bang on about because it it's a bugbear that I have, right? You've either got a hamstring injury or you haven't. And if you've, you've got one, you can't play tennis with it. That 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 I won't budge on that. You can have like a you can have a bit of a strain in it, but there's nothing a physio can do with that. But if you've torn it or pulled a hamstring, you can't carry on. And I don't care what nonsense Djokovic was talking about when he claimed that you could. Like that was that was just waffle. So those things, it's the physios can you know can say. But then Djokovic, you know that that Australian Open, like one of the rules is supposed to be that you can't have a you can't have an injury timeout. For an injury that you bring on the court with you, Djokovic was going to full tournament and getting the getting the physio on about this same hamstring. It should have been right. You can have it in one match because that's when you're claiming you do it. But anything after that, you can't go on that. You can't have an injury timeout for an injury that you've brought onto the court with you. And that's that's something that we have to cla- that we 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 should be really clamping down on because most of these injuries they <laughs> they bring onto the court with them. That's uh. Yeah, I think that that's arguably somewhere you'll get more mileage for kind of injuries they're already aware of compared to, I don't know, it feels like it's going <laughs> to cause huge problems one way or another if you're bringing on a medical professional to say they're either fine or not under kind of a quick quick amount of time and then, you know, they go on and injure themselves further or whatever or, you know, they, or they, you know, just to, it just feels like you're turning into a huge row between a person and a medical professional that probably wouldn't help it, but something about kind of repeating offenders might be a bit more strong. I guess you could look at amount of medical timeouts over a certain period. Yeah, as I was well. going to say you could do it. Maybe each player's allowed two throughout a tournament or something like that. Um, but I don't think you can. Do, I, I really don't think you can do it actually with the diagnosis thing because. Everybody knows. Everybody in sport knows that you can say you've got a back injury, and there's no way of proving that you haven't. Mm. So you could just go. Every player could just go. Hey, I've got a back injury. Um, my back hurts. Or you could just say you're ill, or feeling a bit ill. And what I are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, there is a. Is there also an argument that, like, I don't know. I, I was going to say maybe you just scrap the medical time out and you just say deal with it like it, it's sport like 
you know, if, if you say, oh, sorry, I can't finish the match. Can we can we do it next week? Like, you yeah. know, you can't do that. So, but I suppose the argument is, well, for the product, you don't you don't want matches just to end with a bloke like limping around at the other end. Yeah, but also within that though, James, I I do wonder whether that's a good idea because how much how much really can you improve an injury in three minutes? Yeah, you know, and that that's I think what the frustrating thing with the injury timeout is, is that I've never really seen a genuine injury be improved in that time, other than. You know, it might be something like an ankle, and you can get if you if you kind of rolled your ankle and you can get your ankle taped up, but that's something that you see actually happen. Mm. Somebody rolls their ankle, but other than that, I do wonder whether yeah, you can have part of your two minute, part of your minute and a half. Yeah, I feel I feel I've seen a few injuries where they're particularly quite big tapey ones where it almost feels like they tape something to hang together for a short period of time. Yeah. And that player might win the match, but they're almost inevitably out of the next one when that yeah. does kind of happen. So that yeah. feels like, I don't know if we'd consider that a good or a bad intervention, but probably a good one in terms of proving what can be done in that short period of time, but maybe more for a final than a kind of second round, etc. I also mm. wonder, like, you know, I don't know, I'm brainstorming here, but what about if, like, you can have an injury timeout, but you lose the next game? Yeah, like like you have to with cramp. If you you know if you yeah. like, if you cramp and you're you're serving next and or you cramp and it's not the um, changeover next or whatever, you have to just concede the game. Yeah. Like it was Alcaraz had to do that in the French Open. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the maybe that's the answer. Yeah, could do it just only medical timeouts at the end of a set or something. Yeah, so you just you have, have to have get to the concede. I think that's kind, of, think that's kind of a problem as well though because it, that is that does when most of them tend to occur. That's yeah. when when Sinner did it, isn't it? At the end of the set, yeah, possibly. Yeah, it does so. seem to be the the more often time. But, but I suppose the the counterpoint would be that he, people are still buggering off for six minutes for a wee, so they can kind of have that breaking play anyway at a set. It, it's more about reducing well, that's the, a whole other issue, the number yeah. of reductions I mean, in play, I guess. But but ablutions during matches are just a, a thing that I'm not going willing to get into. Um, what about what about the actual tennis? I mean, Yannick Sinner. <laughs> there were then some more good pic. Well, not good pictures, but pictures of Yannick Sinner then throwing up during into a bin um, <laughs> during his match against Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, I mean, hopefully he's all right and it's not like a virus because that match with Carlos Alcaraz and okay, Medvedev Zverev isn't to everyone's taste in terms of tennis, but it's a pretty blockbuster set of quarterfinals for uh, for Beijing. Calvin, maybe they'll sell some tickets. Uh, let's not be too enthusiastic about that. Um, that was one of the worst bits of that Murray Dimonor match that I watched. There's probably about thirty people in this big stadium. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, we had a question about that in the inbox this week um, from a chap called Ben. Uh, thanks for your question, basis. Why are the Chinese events so poorly attended? The atmosphere is non-existent. The look and feel on TV is very poor. I know they're paying big money, but don't get the point. If the local market isn't interested, could this change with some Chinese success? Is it as simple as that, Calvin? That there aren't many good Chinese players in the men's game, or that well, but actually, to be honest, there are. But you know, I I don't know on it to be honest. I don't know enough about the chat. I know tennis is a big sport. Uh, it's getting big in China, so you would think that. But I don't know whether they're pricing them out or it's a it's. I don't. I do wonder still whether they've got some sort of fallover from COVID mm. in that regard as well. Um, but. They used to sell out. They used to be popular, and it used to be that if there were any Asian players, 
um, playing in China, then the, the stadiums would be full. Yeah. But it just doesn't seem to have happened now, does it? I don't. I don't really know what's what's going on with with that. Again, you, you wonder they... though why they want to pay so much to have them there because they can't fill the stadiums. Mm. Yeah, that, that was exactly the thing I was going to say. You'd think, you know, for a country that can often be quite be trying to pro- project an image, I suppose that may not be entirely factual or not. It feels like they could potentially put some other measures in to put bums on seats. I suppose. I, I mean, I was I was going to ask. I mean. You've spoken a bit about regional tennis in China before, Calvin, and how popular that is. I mean, my knowledge of that circuit is virtually nil, but is that going on at the minute? Are there clashes with that that might compete? I'm I'm not sure. I doubt they're running it at the same time as the Asian swing. I would think it's probably a different time. Um, There has been the Asian Games, Mm. so I don't know whether that is, uh, whether people are staying. I know that's quite big in I saw that um, a couple of the lads, well, the lads who I coach were commenting that, because if, and I think this is, I don't know if this is a rule about all the countries, but in Korea, that if if you don't win a medal, you have to do national service. Um, so, so it, yeah, it's it's kind of reverse engineering it, but basically, yeah, national service is compulsory in Korea unless you have sort of served your nation in another way. And one of those ways is winning a medal at the Asian Games. So, yeah, it's... Um, Kwon yeah. Soon Wu is, is going to have to go and do military service. I mean, Son, uh, Son Heung Min did military service as well, um, although he did a truncated because of his job, basically. He was allowed yeah. to do a truncated military service. But yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, and imagine how tight you'd be. If you, if you, <laughs> don't imagine it allows for great freedom in the way that you play and that kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah um, quite possibly. But yeah, I know a lot of the, I know a lot of the players from Asia of not playing tournaments or haven't been playing tournaments around that time because they've been doing Asian games. Mm. I also noticed that the, uh, I think it was Damien Kustu pointed it out that he reckoned the, the qualifying entry list for, uh, I think it was for Beijing was like one of the weakest he'd ever seen. Like it was, that it was really poor. Maybe it was for Shanghai. I can't remember. Is it the case that, this age, even this Asian swing, Calvin. Lots of players have maybe. I know, for example, your guys aren't aren't playing out in China, but that that might be for some different logistical reasons. But is it that some players are not in China this year for whatever reason that might be, or is it is it just coincidence? I mean, Henry's not there because he would only have got in one tournament hmm. out of all of them. So That's a he long said, way to go. Yeah, yeah, he said he wasn't going to go to China for one week. Hmm. Um, and it's also not for one week. So they're doing this weird calendar, so it takes two weeks out. Yeah. So it's one tournament, but for, for, for two weeks. Um, and, you know, he just said he's going to stay in Europe and just wait mm. for the 250s. I think if if he was going to get into the the 500s and the Masters, then um, he'd have gone there. But we're getting the same debate about how singles players entering doubles in 500s and Masters and then pulling out of the one round. So. Mm. Um George, just to, to drag you back to the actual tennis, uh, Sina Alcaraz. I mean, how do you feel about that matchup at the moment? It, it, it's <clears> one we've talked about a lot, um, and it's certainly a rivalry that we're enjoying. Uh, assuming Sina is fit, where do you think it goes? I mean, I, I've probably got a relatively bleak outlook on this rivalry in the long term, in the sense I think Alcaraz will just keep getting better and better, and I'm not sure Sina necessarily will. Um, so I hope I'm wrong. 
but it feels like a rivalry for the minute rather than <clears throat> necessarily the rivalry that's going to define Alcaraz's career. I mean, I suspect we'll see Alcaraz's career in quite a few different stages and the first key one will be his rivalry with Novak. And I think that will be the defining part of an early Alcaraz career where he has a few back and forth big match with Novak and eventually topples him because Novak, hopefully assumed by the laws of, laws of nature, will catch up on him and he'll eventually be overthrown at the end of... And that will be seen as Alcaraz's first kind of big triumph, getting rid of the, the big three. And then it'll be a period of, I suspect, waiting for someone really, really good to come along and create a rivalry. Um, and I'm I'm just not convinced there's anyone else out there at the minute who's certainly on the tour regularly who's going to make that step up to challenge Alcaraz regularly enough at the rate I think Alcaraz will keep improving. Um, so that's my, my very brief, bleak outlook, James. Um, so. <laughs> Well, time to be invested, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is quite bleak. Um, I mean, is is there anything potentially we could have a Medvedev Alcaraz final, which would be a rerun of the semi final in the US? I mean, is that is that more of a realistic rivalry for the medium term? I hope so. I, I was, re- I, you know, I sort of teased that I thought Medvedev might cause him problems at the US Open, but I still wasn't sure. I a hundred percent believed myself he was going to go and win that match. Um, which he did. You know, Medvedev's a really good player. I just don't think it's a good matchup for him. Um, and, you know, is Medvedev improving much slash at all? He feels, you know, he, he does have peaks and troughs in his form, but I wouldn't say he's improved massively since the level he was at when he won the US Open a couple of years ago. He's probably not improved that much since that run where he reached the final against Nadal. He's always been fairly similar, occasionally a bit shaky in big moments, know what you're going to get with him on a hard court, a bit erratic in the rest of the tour. I, I, I don't know how much better it gets for Medvedev, to be perfectly honest. Um, I don't see a big, you know, Nadal, sorry, Calvin spoke about Nadal dramatically changing his style of play to adapt. It, I think Medvedev would have to probably adapt his style of play quite significantly over the long run to really keep pace with Alcaraz and I think the strategy would be something like twat two first serves every every point and come in behind it and try and completely disrupt him or something mental because I, I just don't see how that's going to pan out for him so yeah I mean obviously it'd be pretty good if it was a final and Medvedev does get a few wins but again I'm expecting and this can change based on injury etc Alcaraz will steam ahead and he will improve aspects of his game that are improvable at a quicker rate than other guys are going to do it. And he's already pretty bloody good. So, you know, I think once Novak tails, the rest of the tour will be looking up at Alcaraz trying to go for calendar slams for a little period. And then hopefully someone else will come along and we'll all be happy again that we have a good rivalry and a, a new, in inverted commas, strong era. Well, yeah, I mean, we got in a lot of trouble on YouTube. Well, not not actual trouble, but lots of people shouted a lot. Um, Isn't that just YouTube full stop? Love you all, really. But for for saying that, you know, Novak was in a weak era. I mean, do you you think, George, that, that, like, as in, and and, and just to clarify, clarification that people mostly missed because people are idiots. Like, we're talking about the era that is kind of forthcoming over the next three or four years. 
But do you think that once Djokovic is gone, then Alcaraz finds himself in a weak era to rack up some more slams? Yeah, I don't, I don't see how you can call an era weak when you've got a guy like Djokovic kicking around. Like that is decidedly not weak. You've got like the best, yeah, statistically the best player of all time. You can say, you know, maybe he wasn't challenged to the max, but he's still kind of just gone from big matches and Nadal to Alcaraz within a kind of eighteen-month period. I wouldn't say mm. it's that weak in terms of the top guys you've got up there. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure necessarily by it's a total weak era full stop but yeah i mean look barring some magic thing novak comes up with to keep him playing for five years you have to say beyond the next 18 months to two years is probably going to be a bit of a transitional period of tennis they've obviously got this great the great thing they've got is that alcaraz can be introduced to an audience via a rivalry with djokovic that he should get the better of really as time goes on like right now, it's a great match because it's pretty close, and Novak's experience is kind of keeping him in a lot of big matches. But if you look at their trajectories and the quality Alcaraz already has in terms of pure physicality and shot making ability, it's really impossible to see that rivalry going in any other direction. I, I think um, so. I'd expect Alcaraz to kind of end his career up on Djokovic fairly considerably after two or three years. And then it's just a question of who comes next. And they do come quickly, by the way. I mean, Alcaraz has shot up in three years, hasn't he, really? Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's not hard for someone to be kicking around. But I've not heard many noises for a while about someone that people are thinking. And I, I am a little bit further removed from the game, I have to say. So maybe I wouldn't be hearing the noises quite so much. But you did used to hear a bit of a rumbling about, oh, yeah, we're really excited about this person. And I've not really heard one for a while I've been keeping tabs on on the men's side since Alcaraz but Calvin might be able to illuminate us there comparatively yeah Calvin anyone anyone kicking around in the uh, I mean they basically all come through Muritoglu all the ones that get hyped but I think that's a chicken and egg argument rather than anything else Um, anyone who's caught your eye Um, I do think that I don't know if in terms of dominating and being right at the top regularly but I do think if he con- if he keeps his body fit that Drapes can compete I think he's got the game that he can beat the best players in the world he's got the serve and he's got the ground strokes that even against Alcaraz we saw they played last year and it was tight it was close and I I think that but again it's a big if I really really hope he can but I, th- I think that if he stays fit I think Drapes will certainly be in the top 10 in the world and I think he'll be competing at the back end of the slams. Mm. Um, again, other than that, not there's a lot of good players around. I don't, I've not seen any that I think that player is going to be at the very top of the game. Mm. Um, there's, I, I've heard a few. I mean, he's won a few junior slams, but that's you know, what does that mean in the men's game? Realistically, uh, Martin Landaluce, <laughs> Landaluce. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Um, who is a Spanish player who I know has worked with Esteban Carril, um, and I think trains or certainly has trained at the Nadal Academy, but that that's the only one. I don't know whether we'll be talking about him. And like I said, like winning a junior slam doesn't mean very much, does no, it? No, because I, I, you know, if you look at Alcaraz, he wasn't really playing the junior slams. Um, he was already developed. Yeah. yeah. So and the same with Nadal. Um, mm. The juniors, the junior slams can be a bit of a 
bit of an anomaly. I mean, you know, Casp- um, not Kasparud, Holger Rune looked like he was going to be there, but he's just fallen off a cliff. Mm. Um, you know, he looked one who was always causing trouble to anybody. That's But that just seems to have gone. Yeah, I mean, we spoke a little bit about that back injury, didn't we, last week? It'll be interesting to see how much of a, a factor that's playing or how long-term it is, because it did feel he had the right mentality and a, a good game to kind of cause a lot but of problems. But he's missing it. He's playing all the time. talking about his injury, but he keeps playing every week. Mm. Is he injured or is he not? You know, <clears throat> yeah, well, quite. But they're saying there's a problem that he's going through, isn't it? And the back never sounds that fun to me. So, well, if you got, yeah, but this is what I mean. If you got a back injury, then <clears throat> what are you doing playing every single tournament? Like, sort it out. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, even if now you know, it's like even if you have to go, if, if you're if you're holding room now and at his age and the, the 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 potential that he has, you don't have any problem going right. I'm just sitting the year out. I'm sitting the year out if my back if if the back's a problem. Or, you know, I'm going to sit here. Or even, I'm just not going to do the Asian swing. Not going to do Asia. I'll come back for Paris because he's defending win in Paris, isn't he? Um, and then go to the year-end finals. But to go, oh, yeah, you know, he's got this real problem with the back injury. Then just playing every week makes me think there's no problem with the back injury at all. It's bullshit. Just been losing <laughs> matches and you don't acknowledge you're losing them. Well, I think, so I think the problem basically is that he's not guaranteed to make year-end finals. Like but he's so right. He's well. I'm just. I'm. 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 Yeah, to no. play devil's advocate. Like he. He is eighth in the race. So realistically, if he skipped China, he wouldn't make it. Like I think that's probably the reality, and that yeah, that's probably if, what's got him. If you're one of those guys, James, who you think you know, look, I get it. Why if you if you're ranked about thirty and that kind of thing, and you think, look, I just can't. I can't be missing tournaments here. But Holgerun, you'd think you're looking at being at the very, the very top of the game, winning slams. Looking at getting to into the the world's top three, top two, and top one, you'd think in that respect. So what? I'll just miss the end of the year. I'll make sure I'm back ready in Australia to compete. But instead of that, you're just playing every tournament and then going, "Oh yeah, you know this back injury that's a problem." Like like, what's the year end finals when you're what? I don't know how old he is. Twenty, hmm. maybe. You know, so what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just sort of get it sorted out. I mean, yeah. like you're young. Well, look, the one thing we know about back injuries in all sport is that <laughs> if you just keep playing the sport, your back injury won't get any better. Yeah, like it needs back injury needs time off. And if you if you if you do actually have one, and I can't see any physio who's who would sign off on that, which makes me think that again, which makes me think that he doesn't have a back injury or a back injury that's actually affecting his results so much yeah i mean i don't know george do you want do you want to call yeah, bullshit with Cal? I, I was gonna just <laughs> we have no idea do we so i guess could, could be other I was, I was gonna say i mean the, the other thing i just say about kind of weak eras right now i mean we we have been robbed of potentially a good five years of what was a very very good dominic team as well, in terms of what what he had, you know that that was a big shame. And I, you can't make that face at him, I Calvin, because to hit George's Dominic team is your Juan Martin Del Potro. It's the same thing. <laughs> no, but that's what I mean. We've, I mean, no, it's true. Like you know, you've got Team Del Potro. You've also got Murray. You know, we've missed three years of Murray. Mm. Like you know, so well longer than that. I mean, Murray got to world number one, and then well, he got to yeah. world number one. What end of twenty sixteen, and then yeah. by Wimbledon twenty seventeen, he was goosed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's 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 ifs and buts, which again, 
makes it bizarre that I do find it bizarre that Novak Djokovic just never really had an injury. <laughs> like when you look at like Federer, Nadal, Murray, Vavrinka, Del Potro, team, all the guys around that era, they've all missed considerable chunks of their career through injury. And and Novak Djokovic uh, hasn't. Well, he had that I'll elbow surgery and that like that he had two spells out for that. But Yeah, but then I think that was, it was also quite minor, wasn't it? Yeah, and it came at a time when he was coincidentally not winning any matches. <laughs> I was going to say though, the uh, I think the, the the big thing Novak's had is yoga from the age of six. That's what I'm convinced the difference is. Yeah, I understand by saying stretching. that I might. I understand by saying that I might bizarrely start getting abuse from Russell Brand fans um, <laughs> as they're seemingly in, inexplicably linked now. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what a weird note to end on, but uh, maybe, maybe we have to. Um, George, I, I will just make note of um, the excellent footage that Calvin sent us of the uh, USTA uh, 15K, where the water looked under the courts and it just the ball wasn't bouncing at all. Um, and also, as you mentioned in the order of play, the US Open wheelchair event is to be cancelled next year because it clashes with the Paralympics, um, which... It may maybe that's unavoidable. Maybe it's not. Was it was it avoidable, George, in any way? Yeah, I think so. And it is pretty poor, really. I mean, you know, these players have now lost a huge amount of prize money for the year. The USCA won't put it on during qualifying, etc. I think uh, Stu Fraser's did a pretty good piece on it this week. If you have a time subscription or means of getting around the time subscription. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that is a bit of a shame and something that it would have been good for them to find some sort of solution for. I do kind of feel like with a hardcore tournament, there's no real excuse for it not to happen in some capacity, like even a week after the US Open, maybe, or whatever. I, I'm mm. not entirely sure on the times, but it does feel a bit odd. They can't make it work one way or another, start qualifying a few days earlier. I don't know. Agreed. Oh, a miserable set of notes to end on, lads, but um, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, please do leave us a rating or review if you can. Um, sign up to the Substack, which uh, is not words I really understand, but um, tennisunfiltered.substack.com. You can just type in your email address. What do we need to do you... to do that, James? Because I, I will do this as well. If you go to tennisunfiltered.substack.com and it will immediately ask you for your email address. And then you can uh, be a subscriber. And then you will get a, an email from us once or twice a month um, of varying levels of interest. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Who knows? You might even agree to give us a quid a month just just to make us feel better about us and so that we can we can keep Calvin in bottles of Coke. Uh, that's our, our main goal for the next year. Anyway, thanks for so listening. You and... can also date... Oh, yeah. As I say, you can also you can donate more if you like. We should have an option that you can donate. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you can buy George a new Wi-Fi extender, um, mm, buy Calvin an alarm clock. That'd be a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll have little sponsored things. Um, but yeah, all right. Anyway, as, as, I, for... as I said last week, I wouldn't have agreed to a podcast at that time anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> that was irrelevant. Even if we get I you a you special alarm clock, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. Catch you next week. See you later. Sports Social Podcast Network.